Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage, where former Hong Kong civil servant Rachel Cartland and I continue to chat about the expanding towns of the new territories, the television show under the Lion Rock, early manufacturing here, and the challenges that faced the government from the 1970s onwards. Rachel Cartland came to Hong Kong at the age of 22 in 1972 as one of two female expatriates in the Hong Kong government's elite administrative grade. She's published her memoirs in the book Paper Tigress, A Life in the Hong Kong Government. Well, after Kowloon City and so on, my first real posting was to the New Territories Administration headquarters, working under David Akers Jones, who so where was is that? still very active. Well, oddly enough, it was in Kowloon. It was in, <laughs> <laughs> it was in the North Kowloon Magistracy Building, which is now a declared monument and uh, being used, I think, as an art college. North Kowloon in those days was very much a place where these old Mark I housing estates, which provided people with some basic shelter and so on, but even then we felt uh, were not very good. Uh, We felt a little bit ashamed of the standard of housing that we were providing. The place we looked to as time went by were Wafu and Oi Man as the examples of what we should be doing in public housing. But even so, those old estates like So Uk and so on, people would emerge from those. My own secretary worked for me in the North Kowloon Magistracy, lived in one of those estates, and people emerged from those full of pride, beautifully dressed, clean, well presented. Because for almost everybody there, I think everybody really without exception, those sort of very basic housing estates represented something better, a situation of advancement really, uh, because very often people were moved from squatter huts into those old resettlement estates. And of course, if not themselves, very often their parents would have come as desperate refugees from China following the revolution. So yes, we were in the North Kowloon Magistracy with the Garden Bakery on the other side of the road. That was a great feature in those days. It was a big part of Hong Kong life altogether. These old-fashioned, well, not, uh, they seem to us now, they barely exist, some of these companies that were absolutely crucial, the Asia Provisions Company, the Garden Bakery. I used to get a lift to work in with a man called Denny Johnson who worked as an estate surveyor and was somebody who was always a chatter and a joker. And the chap who was the owner of the Garden Bakery would come and chat to us when we went and ate lunch in the restaurant that was part and parcel of their offices. So Denny asked him one day, said to him, you know, you're always just making white bread. So the owner said very proudly, I can do other things too. And the next day he produced a big box of baguettes. And <laughs> yeah, but, but it was a sort of, a, just, a, just a kind of showing off because he felt probably rightly that 
in those days there was no real market in Hong Kong for such exotic sort of fare. <laughs> it is interesting, isn't it? Some of these companies that have been around for absolutely ever in Hong Kong, your department stores, I suppose, would have been Lane Crawford, Sincere. Yes. I remember when I started at the NTA headquarters, I wanted to try and keep up my Chinese a little bit. So I found a, a university student from the new Chinese university who came to the office once a week and I'd pay her something and we'd have a bit of Chinese conversation. And of course, there's it always happens you get this kind of cultural exchange as well and she said to me one day one thing i really can't understand is the names of the shops in hong kong and i said what do you mean she said well lane crawford and there was another shop that wasn't there really when i was in hong kong but had been a big deal before called whiteaways lane crawford she said whiteaways they don't tell you anything about what the shops like sincere the sincere company, Honest Motors, that's telling you what the shop is, <laughs> is like. So there was a little bit of mutual bafflement, I, I think, there. And she was also somebody who introduced me to this great world of Chinese film titles because she went on to say, the same way she said, we can't understand the way you title films. And I said... What do you mean? She said, well, for example, she said, The Sting. That was a very popular film at the time with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. She said, what does that mean? It's a silly name. She said, you know, the Chinese name for that, when you translate it into English, is the story of two tricksters who were smarter than the people who came top of the Chinese civil service exam. Now then you know what it is you're going to see. <laughs> also a key time for the Hong Kong film industry. A lot of that is now filmed across the border. So did you actually see films being filmed on the streets here? Not so much. I mean, it was also a key time for RTHK. And I'm still a great friend of Zheng Manyi, who, of course, in those days was a very uh, young and glamorous, well, she still is pretty glamorous, girl working on that seminal series, Under the Lion Rock. I think the thing about being part of history and, and historic things is that you never quite recognise it at the time. So something like Under the Lion Rock. Which, tell me about that. What was that? Under the Lion Rock was started up by RTHK, slightly on the model of, I think, the Archers in Britain, which started actually as a way, a soft educational feature to tell farmers in Britain about how to manage the crops or whatever. So Under the Lion Rock was meant to be a soft way to... And was radio. ...tell people about... No, it was TV, um, about useful things like family planning. But the stories were so compelling and so accurate about what life was like in Hong Kong in the 70s that it became, quite rightly, entrenched in popular culture and now something that people look back on so fondly as an exemplification of the entire Hong Kong spirit of those times of neighbours helping each other, struggling to survive, struggling to do better. 
In the same way, the girl I took over from in the New Territories administration, her name was Ophelia. It was Ophelia Jung. And at one point, she introduced me to her younger brother, who was a very nice-looking young man. And that was Leslie Jung, Jung Kwok Wing. Yeah. So you just think, and she said, oh, this very famous singer-actor. Yeah, and and she said, oh, this is my brother, a singer. And so you think, "Mm, oh, well, that's interesting. But obviously, (laughs) you don't think, oh, gosh, this is is one of the most famous figures in Chinese popular culture. It's only later on that the pieces all fit together. I'm talking to Rachel Cartland, the author of Paper Tigress, A Life in the Hong Kong Government. Certainly, if you were interested in Western art forms, there was very little at the time, but what was available, we would all rather grasp onto. There was a film club called Studio One, that uh, would hire the City Hall and um, show films that were not likely to get a showing in the commercial cinemas here. And then the Arts Festival started another Maclehose initiative in the early 70s and people, I suppose they still do to some extent, organise their calendars around that and then middle class people who could afford to do so would certainly be organising their calendars around the Arts Festival. It was an easier place to run in many ways than Hong Kong today of course because they would organise things like the Hong Kong Festival summer programmes and so on and Everybody would think, wow, this is nice, this is special, because they had relatively few other opportunities and would go to them. I mean, there was even in the early 70s uh, still a unit in the old government information services, now the information services department, that would go around the new territories showing to villagers what really amounted to British government propaganda films, you know, the work of the Coast Guard, and would show black and white movies in the village square about British Coast Guards or the British Post Office or something like that. But that was that sort of thing was pretty much at its last gasp. People, the government did understand they had to do something a bit different. That's really interesting because when you look at that you were part of this new territories administration beginning you know, in the early 1970s onwards, the fact is that the new territories, of course, would have been vastly different to what we see today. Were there any new towns at all and what, what was shot in at that time? Well, I'm afraid in a sense you could say we were busy ruining the new territories, although uh, I think we did it for a very good reason. What were considered to be the new towns in a sense were Guntong and Chun one because those were industrial areas where more housing was naturally growing up around them and then again like everything else a Maclehose initiative the idea was that we would make Chun Wan into a proper new town and add to it Sha Tin and Tun Moon. Sha Tin, of course, was a farming place and Tun Moon was a fishing place, a fishing village, really, whereas Sha Tin was more established as a, a centre. And then as time went by later on, we added Fan Ling and Yun Long as satellite centres. And the way that those towns were planned, again, I'm perhaps my glass are too rosy tinted but I think it was exemplary because the idea was that they would be self-contained so that you would have 
everything that people wanted there to live there. So you would have the schools, the housing, but also town hall, so that you would have a place that people could go to to see shows and have uh, functions like school prize givings and so on. And there would be clinics and everything else that people needed. So I think as towns and places to live, and of course, again, they were housing people who had been living in lamentable conditions, again, still clearing the squatter huts or even gradually replacing the old Mark I resettlement estates with their communal facilities. So I think from that point of view, they were a success. The economic model that went with them did become outdated because Hong Kong was a very big manufacturing center. I mean, for quite a period of years, they were actually like manufacturing on massive scale, toys, jewelry, clothing, and so on, exporting all over the world. Yeah, describe that to me in sense of, I understand, you know, even in North Point, but also obviously in places like Kuantong, there would have been, as you say, these manufacturing bases, but were they always large factories or were were some of it sort of almost done on the hillsides? Yeah, it was very much done. And the other day I said the words flatted factories and somebody said, what was that? And then again, I think, oh my gosh, I'm such a dinosaur. These are, these are such a part of life because what the housing department did as an ancillary to the rental housing was they provided blocks where people could run very small factories that small ent- entrepreneurs could start up. And I remember going to see one of those and there was an old chap there with a tiny production line of about five women and a pair of toy binoculars which he'd bought from somewhere and which he was busily copying. So I'm afraid we weren't so careful about intellectual property in those days, perhaps. But that was the way that Hong Kong started and almost all those great companies and great entrepreneurs had at least a phase of doing that. And in those Lion Rock days, the bank was also really important. The Hong Kong Bank, of course, has this tremendous place in people's affections. And the head of the bank, whom I knew best, who was a wonderful man, was Sir Willie Purvis. And he had had periods earlier in his career when he would quite literally spend his time going to some dusty small toy factory in North Point, rummaging around, talking to the owner, and then saying, yes, I think you've got something worth doing here. I'll give you a loan. And that was the way that Hong Kong and its prosperity was made. So you would have toys. You also would you have torches and transistor radios? Uh, yes, absolutely, batteries. So S.Y. Chung and his Sonka battery factory were very important. And clothing, textiles. The textiles were a little bit hidden because, of course, the clothes manufacturers were mostly making clothes for other well-known companies and exporting madly. One of the other people that I got to know in my first couple of weeks in Hong Kong was a wonderful man called Casey Liu. And again, it was through an Oxford contact. Uh, One of my friends at Oxford had a brother who was part of the trendy clothes industry in UK. There was a chain of trendy men's shops that everyone aspired to called Cecil G. And he and his family bought their shirting 
from Hong Kong. So I had the uh, contacts there and looked up Casey. And Casey, his company was a very typical Hong Kong company. It was an import-export agent, but basically exporting things. So shirting and so on was important, textiles, but also watches and so on. Whatever people in the wider world wanted, he would find a Hong Kong source for it and arrange the export. It was an interesting time. It was also uncertain in terms of you would have sometimes typhoons or landslides. You had water shortages. There would have been all of those aspects to deal with. But I think there would have been also a feel of, of Hong Kong moving forward. Yeah, exactly. And I must say, talking to you is really giving me a horrible bout of nostalgia <laughs> because one does like wish to be back there, as it were, because it, it was such an exciting and interesting and positive time. The hillsides were another problem. There were enormous landslides and really disastrous one in Sampo Kong, in fact. And then again, Maclehose stepped in and brought in experts from the UK who discovered that there was absolutely no knowledge of what the hillsides in Hong Kong were really like geologically and from the point of view of were there underground streams that were going to make them slip and so on. So they began a massive exercise of mapping all the hillsides and the geotechnical office was set up in the old public works department. And again, that work has now really been completed in that we know what the nature of the slopes that we have to deal with is and we have very comprehensive systems of slope safety. Yeah, as you say, that that period where the new territories, that the towns would have just been starting to be built. So you wouldn't have seen a lot of tower blocks. Well, we built tower blocks pretty much straight away, actually. But, of course, in the process, the run-up, you were seeing villages being changed. And I think there would be a little bit of a pang in seeing this very traditional rural way of life being lost but overall we thought it was all for the better. I, I mean, a little bit supplementarily, I remember from those similar early days too, going to Discovery Bay, in fact in a helicopter, when it was a completely bare hillside and being told that this was now going to be developed into a resort residential area. You mentioned that you worked for then David Akers-Jones in the New Territories Administration, would later become Sir David Akers-Jones. He was colonial secretary. He would also be acting governor. He also gave you away at your wedding. That's right. My husband was then working as Murray Maclose's private secretary. So that's Michael Cartland. That's right. So our timetable for life very much depended on Sir Murray's. There was no... He wasn't the kind of boss where you could tell him what you wanted. And he rather suddenly decided to go to UK for three weeks. So we thought, aha. And my parents were not at all the sort of people who travelled. They never came to Hong Kong, and my father's health by then was not great anyway. So I asked David, who was my boss at the time, if he would very kindly do the honours, which he very much did. So where did you get married? In the Union Church in Kennedy Road, with Joyce Bennett helping out at the ceremony too. Going into the 1980s, it would have been a time in Hong Kong in 1984. Of course, you've got uh, the joint declaration. Margaret Thatcher had become Prime Minister in Britain in 1979. 
In the 70s and 80s, you know, Guangdong is right there. Was it a very porous border? Was there any sense of, you know, well, let's hope that this joint declaration is successful? Did you feel that Mrs Thatcher was giving Hong Kong away or that it was inevitable? It wasn't a porous border at all for a long time. As I say, China, from during the period of the Cultural Revolution, 67 to 77, was as strange and as cut off as North Korea is today. And it's quite funny that in the New Territories Administration, obviously on all our offices, on the walls we had very big maps. And the maps would show Hong Kong and the New Territories in great detail. And then there'd be a big bit of white space to the north for the border with China. And when eventually we could manage to visit Guangdong officially and so on, we discovered, amusingly enough, that their office maps were the converse. (laughs) They're great detail for Guangdong and the Pearl River Delta and pretty much white space for Hong Kong, Kowloon and the new territories. And it was not easy to cross. I mean, people obviously had, for a long period, were actually risking their lives, literally, to try and cross the border. They were swimming across Mers Bay, which was a very dangerous thing to do, quite apart from the fact that it was a long swim and a cold swim. There were also plenty of stories of sharks there, and nobody, of course, knows in those sort of circumstances how many people died in the attempt, but it's assumed that a great many people did. People could sometimes manage to visit their families so long as they weren't families that were distinguished enough to be somehow have fallen foul of the authorities. So they might be able to go at Chinese New Year crossing the Lowu Bridge under the old arrangement where you actually had to get off the train and then walk across the bridge and then get on another train. And they would be taking commodities, very basic commodities to their families in China, cooking oil, basic medicines and this sort of thing. That's what people needed in those days. In the run-up to the joint declaration and so on, there was great anxiety, really. I came here in 93 uh, when a number of people, like my early landlady, they'd been in Canada, for example, but then had decided to come back ahead of the handover. Did you see quite an exodus in the 80s? Oh, massively. And it was a time, as I say, of great anxiety, people really calculating in a very heartbroken way about what they should do and taking these decisions. Often people are at the peak of their career, Hong Kong Chinese people for whom this was totally home and their cultural background and feeling that they had to go to Canada, to Australia, to a lesser extent to UK. If I had to fault Murray McLehos for anything, and it's easy to call people wrong if you didn't have to make the decisions yourself. He probably was over-ambitious in his first visit in the late 70s to China, the first dialogue with Deng Xiaoping and so on. It's something that we didn't really know about at the time. He just came back with this message that Hong Kong people should set their hearts at ease. But we we actually now know it was half the message and that he had been told very firmly that sovereignty would be taken back. And I think if you look at this with hindsight, you can see really it was inevitable. How could a proud nation like China allow this small piece of wealthy but peripheral territory 
to be held by somebody else. But didn't Margaret Thatcher need a bit of persuasion? I, I see, I've read that, that she had this idea of, OK, well, if we have to, you know, the, the, the fact that the New Territories was a 99-year lease, OK, that's got to go back. But if we can keep Hong Kong Island and, and even this idea of if, if, if the mainland cuts off the water, we'll use water tankers. Yeah, I believe that that's so. Obviously, I wasn't privy to those sort of discussions, but I, I understand exactly that, and that the Foreign Office had to show her where Boundary Street in Kowloon was, and that it really wasn't feasible to run the place without the entirety of it. And, of course, you do wonder, too, how excited the Chinese would have been by a rather legalistic discussion. You know, this bit is ours, this bit's just on a lease, and we'll give you back the bit on the lease. But certainly, I think, some of the Maclehoe's strategy in building the new towns was to fill up, as it were, the whole territory of Hong Kong right up to the border with China, hoping that China would then be more amenable saying, OK, the whole lot works as an entity. We'll leave it to you. There was a lot of talk which I think was really unrealistic in the early 80s, late 70s, going, we're doing so well here. Perhaps China will let us run the place on a management contract or something like that. And that, I say, with the benefit of hindsight, why on earth would China agree to that? Were you sensing that here? What was your sense? Oh, am I going to be able to continue on with my career here? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, there's no doubt, I'm afraid, that having another passport gives you a completely different perspective because you know that if, you, if necessary, you can leave and start again somewhere. And, of course, this was the calculation that all the Hong Kongers were making hadn't I better take out an insurance policy? That was the way they saw it. And because we were working with people very closely, I think we identified with their pain and difficulty, but we couldn't feel it ourselves in quite the same way. So you also had children here? Yeah, a son born in 79, a daughter born in 82. And so how do they, where do they see themselves? Uh, well, I've now got one living in London and one living on Lama Island. And with the ironic way that these things tend to work out, the one who's living in London has got the degree in Chinese and the one who's <laughs> living on Lama Island has got a degree in French. My daughter in particular, I think, is quite lucky in the sense that although she's living in London, she works in Parliament in the House of Commons for a Conservative MP and she and he are probably the only Chinese speakers in the House of Commons, although there's now an ethnic Chinese MP, Alan Mack, who I assume speaks Cantonese too. And Richard Graham, who is her boss, is the chairman of the all-party parliamentary group on China. So she's lucky in that in her day-to-day -day job, she does get plenty of opportunities to work with Chinese Embassy, the Hong Kong Economic and Trade Office, and generally to keep an interest in uh, what's going on in China and Hong Kong. And as for my son, of course, as we, uh, he has a, he's got a Filipino wife and a seven-year-old daughter, and the seven-year-old daughter refers to Lama as my island paradise home. So <laughs> they're both quite happy in their different ways. <laughs>
My thanks to Rachel Cartland talking there on her 34-year career in the Hong Kong government. Rachel is the author of Paper Tigress, A Life in the Hong Kong Government. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.